0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Artificial intelligence is perhaps the most hyped technology in the world. In today's episode, we're going to hear a discussion that invites the listener to think about how money, power, and some other troubling forces and ideas that shape our society are built into AI systems and the way we think about deploying them. In May, the University of Washington's Tech Policy Lab and Center for an Informed Public co-hosted a virtual book talk featuring Kate Crawford, a leading scholar of the social implications of artificial intelligence and author of the recently published book, Atlas of AI. Power, Politics, and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence, published this spring by Yale University Press. Kate is in conversation with Ryan Kahlo, who is the co-founder of the Center for an Informed Public and also co-founder of the interdisciplinary UW Tech Policy Lab and a UW School of Law professor. Here's Ryan.
2: So, Kate, welcome, and I'm so glad to be able to talk to you uh, today.
0: Ryan, it's such a pleasure to be here, and and it just, you know, I want to say a big thank you to the Centre for the Informed Public and and also to Tech Policy Lab, which has been doing such important work in this space for a long time, Um, you know, a a space that you co-founded and I think has been such a leading light on these issues, and it's just fantastic to see you, so thank you for inviting me.
2: Like I said, I mean, this book, um, I, I know it sounds this maybe a strange thing to say. Um, I've heard many people say it. It's a page turner. It's an academic, <laughs> deeply researched book, you know, but it's a page turner. It's hard to put down. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm serious. I was, I was actually a bit surprised. And so it's just, it's just really, um, I couldn't recommend it enough. And so what you, one of the things you really emphasize in the book is the need to ask hard questions about AI. Right, and so one of the one of the hard questions about AI I have for you is what is AI? Like, what the heck is AI? Right? I mean, um, do you have any thoughts on that that scoping question?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, of course, because the term has such a long history. You know, we can go back to its inception around the, the 1950s during the Dartmouth Conference, but even earlier, it starts to circulate. And it's come to mean many different things over the course of the decades. But the thing that's most common these days, and, and it's one of my favorite tests, is if you type artificial intelligence into a search engine and just do an image search, what you tend to get is rows and rows of images of numbers floating in blue space and sort of men wearing glasses staring into the middle distance and lots of white robots, actually, Ryan. I think that's, mm, that's something yes. that, that you and I have, have commented <laughs> on in the past that, like, oh, they're all white and they're all robots. It's it's really this kind of view from nowhere. It's this this algorithmic abstraction that I think really... Disguises the way that artificial intelligence is actually constructed. So for me, you know, for for many years, I've been describing artificial intelligence as a combination of yes techniques, there are sort of technical approaches, but there are also social practices. How is it made inside labs? How are all of the types of people working on these systems throughout the supply chain part of making AI? And then it's also these infrastructures. Some of those infrastructures are large technical infrastructures. Some of them are political infrastructures. Some of them are economic infrastructures. It's very clear that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. It's a, it's a profoundly <laughs> material technology, you know, that is made from a enormous amounts of natural resources, both sort of mineralogically, but also in terms of just the raw energy that it takes to power these systems. You know, it's made from enormous amounts of exploited labor. Again, we can think about crowd workers, but there are many different types of labor that often aren't thought about um, in terms of how AI is made. And of course, vast amounts of data. So really thinking about AI much more broadly, as an extractive industry uh, for the 21st century. One of the funny things to me about studying robots is
2: that robots have been around for an exceptionally long period of time. Like there's like references to like an antiquity, you know, to robots. And yet somehow they always are symbols of the future. You know, they've been been symbols of the future forever. But artificial intelligence, as you point out, I mean, though it is sometimes depicted with some futuristic robot, it's like this disembodied this disembodied thing, this, this eth- ethereal thing. So right. I, I want to I follow up um, on, on this idea of, of materiality, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, uh, when I was reading your book, I, I really could not help but make a parallel in my mind um, to Silent Spring, the, the book by Rachel Carson, you know, from, from the 1960s. The parallels are, are actually quite striking. I mean, for example, she's describing um, the use of chemicals that were developed in a, in a military. Context, but then ultimately used um, domestically, um, where the impacts were kind of tamped down and policed, you know, by rhetoric and and the like. And so there's certain there's certain commonalities. But you know, one of the things that you really foreground in this book and in your prior work is that AI's materiality and, in fact, its environmental impact. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I remember even you know a few years ago, um, your anatomy of an AI, which was um, this beautiful art, but also, uh, you know, an intervention uh, and, and pedagogic all at once, where you were exploring that materiality. So I just, I guess I would like to ask you or hear from you, what, what are some of these impacts that we don't hmm. understand about AI? And why don't we understand
0: them? Why, are the, why is the materiality and the environmental impact hidden from most people? Well, I mean, thank you for for this question, because, you know, Rachel Carson is an extraordinary thinker who I think trans, I mean, she did, she transformed landscapes and, and, you know, that book is coming on its, in ne- back next year, it will be 60 years old. And it it was one of those moments where Carson really took a series of practices that had been completely normalized, you know, so the, the biocides as she calls them, just like pouring you know, these, these kinds of layers of chemicals through the environment and really traced them through a much sort of longer set of paths to say, how is this affecting humans? How is it affecting birds? How is it affecting our entire ecology? And that's you know a difficult thing to do, uh, particularly because these things are invisible. You know, she's, she's looking at a set of things that you can't see in the environment, but they're having these long term impacts. And in many ways, you know, we can think about artificial intelligence uh, in a similar way. And that, you know, these are systems that are often back ended. You know, they're, they're databases that you're not engaging with. I mean, we know the so called megafauna of AI. You know, you see things like oh, an iPhone. We know that you know that's that's using a lot of AI. You know, we understand that. Tesla cars uh, uh, sort of using AI systems to detect objects um, and, and you know we can see those things, but in many ways what 's really happening is is out of sight and so for me to try and track the environmental implications of that really was was a was a one of the harder research projects that that sort of c- is contained within the book, and it was really transformed by doing anatomy of an AI system with Ladan Jola, who did this illustration. I, I always have to give a, a shout out to him. He's an extraordinary artist and visualizer, and and we did this project back. We started back in 2016, would you believe, trying to trace the the full life cycle of a single Amazon Echo. So that meant not just the data pipelines, you know, how it's extracting human voices when you say, Alexa, you know, order me a toilet roll. You know, that's that's one pipeline. But we decided to find out- <laughs> We're our sorry
2: people. to all the people that have ordered toilet rolls now that yeah, you've Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> right.
0: But, I mean, it becomes this very common convenience. You know, we don't necessarily think about what it takes to invoke that convenience. So we then went back to sort of what's inside an Amazon Echo. Where do the components come from? Where are they mined? You know, where's the cobalt and the lithium coming from? How is it smelted? How is it processed? How is it shipped? And then we also looked at the end of life, you know, what happens when these convenience devices get thrown out. And generally, it's around sort of 3.7 to 4 years before people discard them. And they go in these big e-waste tips that have this extraordinarily long lasting toxic legacy um, in places like Ghana and Pakistan and Malaysia. So, you know, that really for me, uh, transformed my thinking to to sort of do that work, to sort of trace those supply chains and those environmental impacts from a single device, it was very clear to me that what I needed to do next was to actually expand that, to look at an entire industry and to look at how AI itself is drawing on so many of these, these, in many cases, quite limited resources of, of minerals, rare earth, lithium, cobalt, that are now the focus of, as we've seen, the Biden's administration's executive order around Critical supply chains. You know, we really are looking at a, a very real crisis in terms of how we've been acting as though these these resources are limitless when they're clearly not. Well, you
2: also you also um, just from reading the book, you you physically travel to many of mm-hmm. these places um, and you look directly upon some of the things that people just don't see. We don't see the. Enormous server farms. We don't see the mines where this stuff is coming from. I mean, I was reminded of like you know uh, Langdon Winner's essay that in, in, the, in the that opens the the whale in the reactor. The way that he's looking at a at a reactor and he sees a, 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 a majestic glimpse of nature at the same time. I mean, it was you know. And so so did you? Why did you feel you had to physically go there? Was it just for the fun of exploration, or was there something more? I just no, it's was it's, so it's, it's it's.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's a very specific choice, and it is precisely to try and ground artificial intelligence. If we're to see what it takes to that to make it, to this full sense of what it takes to make AI, I think you have to go and see it. I think it's it's one thing to sort of imagine it, but to see its materiality does require putting yourself, you know, on the line and going to those places, you know, going to places like the last lithium mine in Nevada in Silver Peak and going inside an Amazon fulfillment warehouse to actually see the, the physical experience of working in these, you know, highly automated environments to sort of go inside, you know, the archives where the types of classifications that machine learning systems use all the time, where did they come from to also sort of look at those histories. So, it was, you know, very much, a, a, if you will, almost a political choice about what it is to say we can no longer ignore the actual origins of these systems and their costs, and, and to engage with it, you kind of have to see it. So, you know, that was part of the process uh, for me in writing the book.
2: So, you know, I'd asked you also a bit about about what sort of forces obscure all that. I mean, you know, there is the idea that you just when you experience AI, and by the way, I mean, I just want to be clear. Some of this stuff is amazing. You know, my, my son has a watch that you hit a button on it and he can say something in any, in, in English and it translates it into dozens of different languages immediately. I mean, on, on a watch, I mean, that is, it's, it's amazing, right? So, but you, you experience that aspect of it. Uh, but you don't know what, what comes from behind. And so one of the concepts I wanted to ask you about was this concept of enchanted determinism, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, it brought, it brought up a couple of things for me. So one of them was like, Sally Wyatt's ideas of like justificatory determinism, where you know, where where like, in order to to sort of justify industrial prerogatives, we talk about technology as inevitable. But it wasn't just that; it was also kind of mixed with, I don't know, almost like a sorcerer's apprentice and a goat, you know, goat sort of, or you know, ultimately, fantasia sorcerer's apprentice narrative about a broom coming alive, you know. And so it's so, so what 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 is enchanted determinism, and what work is it doing here?
0: Yeah, I mean, the idea of enchanted determinism comes from a, a, a big project that Alex Campolo at the University of Chicago and I did. So, sort of really tracing the way that artificial intelligence is written about both in the technical literature, but also often in the press as, as almost magical as sort of an alien intelligence. If you look at the way that, you know, when, when AlphaGo uh, was published, that it was, you know, being described as superhuman. So these descriptions of AI systems as being, you know, completely, you know, enchanted, uh, something very other to, to sort of, to human processes and thought and institutions, but at the same time, deterministic, which is to say that they can sort of, you know, intervene and sort of Make determinations which are seen as being you know, profoundly accurate, uh, predictive of you know what humans in the world will will do. Um, so that combination, I think, of, of mystification and at the same time a, a claim towards objectivity and neutrality in technical systems, is this sort of very strange sort of response that we see this this pairing that, that happens quite frequently. And, and, and in that dialectic, I think once you start to sort of pull it apart, you see that it, it, it has all of these features of actually making people. feel. Feel unable to intervene or to understand. It's like, well, if these systems are so powerful and yet magical, we can't regulate them Ryan, or you know, we can't we can't study them, we can't audit them. You know, they're, they're out of reach. They're these sort of extraordinary things that must not be contained. So I think it has a lot of flow-on effects as well as a way of thinking that that certainly you know that you and I um, over over a decade of talking about these issues together would se- would sort of see that we've we've lost the thread of how to regulate these systems well, and I think features like that are a part of the reason. Yeah,
2: you know, I've been thinking a lot um, about the so-called pacing problem, you know, this idea that technology is just too fast for for law to keep up, right? Um, But then I'm also reminded that like you and I have been in conversation, for example, with the Obama White House um, in their inaugural workshop on artificial intelligence for for well over a decade now, right? And so the, the issue isn't, Usually is not so much that, <laughs> that, that law somehow can't keep, keep up. You know, it's, it's, it's usually that actually, um, there's something else at work. There's some other force. And I, I just love the, the, the idea of Enchanted Determinism really um, really added on lot to my thinking.
0: No, it's funny, because I was, I was thinking about your work in particular, because you, you wrote, I think it was back in 2017, you wrote an AI policy roadmap. And I was thinking that obviously, you know, sort of, I've been writing an atlas, you wrote a roadmap, you know, these ideas <laughs> of, of mapping and understanding um, sort of the, ter- the terrains of change, if you will. Um, I'm curious, like, for you in that time, you know, where are we now? Like, if you're thinking about the roadmap, at this point in 2021, you know, have we progressed that far from from what you were seeing in 2017?
2: I think that we have and we haven't. Right. So I I would say that you know on, on on the one hand we have abandoned certain kind of immature discussions in my in my own words, you know, in, in my view, immature discussions about um, whether uh, AI is going to wake up one day. Even though I, by the way, I absolutely love this film and I recommend it to everybody, but in sort of Mitchell versus the machines way, you know what I mean? Where somehow an an AI assistant, you know, winds up taking over. Um, and we've, and we've moved that conversation to conversations about manipulating consumers about um, misinformation uh, being amplified by algorithms into and and you really, and you and um, I'm you know a few others too for sure, but you have you really helped us you know see uh, some of the ways in, in which these systems are also uh, extractive. you know I'm thinking of, of literally extracting minerals and having an environmental impact, um, but also, extracting, um, uh, other things, you know, like data and labor and so on. And so, and so I think that, that, that people like you and others, of course, um, who are talking about these issues have, have, have caused us to focus in on the things that are, that are really concerning. Right. So I think we've made that move and I think that's a lovely thing. Um, and I also think that, um, at least some places like, uh, like Europe, for example, are thinking quite seriously about how we can actually write real rules. Um, but at the same time, I, I absolutely believe that the forces you describe in your book um, are still in full effect. <laughs> and so, and so I wanted to ask you about some of these things that I just mentioned just now, which is in addition to the materiality, I, I was so fascinated to read some of the connections you are making between what you, what you refer to as sort of the logics of, of AI systems and previous schemes of classification. Right. right and so I wonder if I could get you to talk a little bit about it's not just about extraction it's also about this this classification the system of classification that has its own sort of logic and its own sort of consequences mm-hmm. um, so could, could you could you describe that a little more and what, what role that plays
0: yeah no I am happy to do so I mean if I think about the work that I was doing gosh almost 10 years ago now looking at bias in in sort of large data systems um, and you know back then I can remember sort of people saying oh you know I mean bias is going to go away. The more data we have, the more accurate systems will be, and and you won't be seeing these sorts of issues of misrepresentation or forms of discrimination. And and it's kind of extraordinary to see, you know, what's happened over that time is an enormous amount of research and journalistic investigations that have shown time and time again that we've had bias in, you know, the criminal justice system, in education tools, in hiring tools, And and it's really throughout the system. And for me, certainly over the years of doing this work, I think in many ways bias is simply too narrow a term. And I started to look at these sort of classificatory logics, which is to say, you know, how are technical systems being trained on data to recognize the world and to ascribe uh, either characteristics or identity to objects, to people and to things. Um, and, and for me, again, the, the, the moment that was really just blew me away as, as a researcher working in that space sort of empirically was a collaboration um, with the artist Trevor Paglan where we spent two years through digging through the material layers of training sets and, and we spent a lot of time looking at one of the most influential in fact ImageNet um, which has in its own way been I would say probably one of the most well-known training sets um, certainly for object recognition but we started to see these. kind sort of Classifications of people in the sort of the subset of these training sets where lots of images have been scraped off the internet of people and put into categories. And some of those categories were things like, you know, gal or father or in some cases CEO. And then you start to look at the images and you see, oh, CEO, it's mainly white guys. Oh, basketballer, it's mainly black men. Oh, and then you have categories for things that are completely illogical as a visual category, like debtor or kleptomaniac. And then you sort of start to see the way that people are being classified into moral judgments, like that this person is um, an alcoholic, that this person is a bad person. I mean, it's just extraordinary some of the terms. And then you get absolutely shocking racialized, gendered, slurs sort of throughout. And and for me to be like, wow, this is a system that has been so influential for over a decade and has informed so many production systems that are out there today, and yet had these classificatory logics that had gone unexamined and and, and uncritiqued and sort of just accepted. So the more that we start to look at that, we start to see that AI systems are doing this all the time. You know, Systems like this when we're on, on video chat can be very easily used to say, oh, well, will put you into gender categorizations. They'll say, oh, if you have long hair, you're a woman, or if you have a beard, you're a man. And again, why are we using these binary gender assumptions? Same with racial categories. Again, the way that the systems are being used to sort of categorize people according to things like skin tone. This has a dark past. I mean, this connects to both kind of histories around physiognomy and phrenology, but also in terms of just like, you know, racialized and gender classifications that are done by centralized systems. So in the book, you know, I I sort of give a shout out to the work of Jeff Bauker and Susan Lee Starr in their extraordinary book, Sorting Things Out, which looked at how classifications make people and how people's lives are then changed by those classifications. So you have this sort of looping effects, and that is now being centralized inside technical systems. It's a long answer, but for me, shifting this, debate away from kind of the whack-a-mole of, oh, we found another bias system, to be like, why is this happening? Let's look at that underlying classificatory logic. And, and, And I think that asks much bigger epistemological questions around how AI systems are constructing knowledge and what feedback loops that's creating.
2: I mean, ImageNet is a, is a, is a fascinating example. And as you say, underpins like unbelievable range of, of computer vision and, and recognition. I mean, but I was, I was struck by just, for example, how much is premised on mugshots, right? Just because what, what's available? Like what's legible? Um, and I want to ask you a follow up question too, which is, you know, I'm reminded, I'm sorry, I, I'm, 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 I've joked about this before on Twitter, but I'm becoming insufferable because I'm reading a lot of STS. And so all my references are going to be <laughs> <laughs> unlike your friend who just learned, just learned STS, you know, in the last couple of years. But, um, you know, I'm sort of reminded of the story about the, the tomato harvesters. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Where all of a sudden we're going to we, we, efficiency is important. There's not enough people, uh, people don't have enough food. So we're going to use these machines and we're going to make uh, tomato harvesting much more efficient. Uh, but then, of course, the story is that um, for that to work. Uh, tomatoes had to be had to be firmer and we had to uh, because otherwise too many would be destroyed and and they and so that did affect the taste but it made them more more durable and so therefore this this uh, machine solution could could reach fruition even though it forever you know sort of changed what what the what what most people think of as a tomato um and i was i was struck by by the realization that um we have done that to an enormous degree with emotion recognition, mm. right? And so, um, you know, that, that chapter on emotion was just, it really brought a lot of things together together for me, you know um that I hadn't thought of before. but I wonder if you could you could talk about why did you take um why did you treat emotions separately? like what was it about you know right and like what is the story of emotional recognition whats what is what what is that layer into our understanding about AI systems?
0: I mean, for me, the reason why you know emotion and affect recognition as as it's called in in various places is such an important example because it allowed me in particular to sort of dig into the history. Of an idea um, and so what I did is sort of really sit very very closely with the work of Paul Ekman who's a psychologist who back in the 1960s was, was very influenced by Sylvan Tompkins who had thought about this idea of the affects that there was sort of universal affects that we had um, that were shared regardless of you know what culture you're in, how old you were, you know, what sort of person you were, whether you're in relation to someone or or not. Um, And so he had this idea that there were six universal emotions. And and, he tried to sort of evidence that by going to places like Papua New Guinea and sort of, you know, showing remote tribes, you know, these headshots to try and again, with a person who'd never done kind of cross-cultural research, you know, had all of these kinds of problems trying to do that. But the idea really caught on. And, you know, despite the fact that it's had critics since the beginning, you know, anthropology like Margaret Mead really critiqued the idea that there were universal emotions that were always legible on the face, regardless of culture, context, and relationality. But when it started to get picked up by computer vision, there's a shift, which is this idea that you've got a very simple taxonomy of six, although some expand it to seven or eight, uh, and that it can be read from the face and that you can essentially read people's interior states. And there's a real shift that happens there. And I, and I think one of the things that I really wanted to understand in the process of research, researching this book is, you know, how is it that so many psychologists and scholars for years have said that, you know, it's not as simple as that. You, you, this, this one-to-one translation between facial movements and interior states doesn't exist. That it's been. Adopted so uncritically in, in machine learning. You will see Ekman sort of cited as though this is this is just the the field, this is how it works. Um, and so I, I sort of it led me on this historical journey, but it also led me through thinking about, you know, what are the the points that drive systems like this to be constructed? And and certainly. Ekman's own work was, was, was heavily funded by the military at sort of various points in his career. And we start to see after September 11, the desire for states to have that ability to sort of see into your interiority, to see if you're a potential terrorist, for example. Um, and these systems continue to fail. They don't work. They, they are driven by this phrenological impulse, you know, to know more about somebody than they're, they're prepared to reveal. Um, so to, to sort of really trace that and to see how, in some ways, The theories have been adopted if they suit what the tools can do. And so we have to be really careful when these kinds of models are adopted uncritically into machine learning that ultimately narrow our understanding of of humans in 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 an incredibly, infinitely complex world.
2: It it helps to dig a little deeper, as you pointed out, about one of the ways that we've reached the Relatively sober-eyed, mature understanding we have of the potential harm of AI has been indeed through researchers, through journalists, litigators, right? Yeah. I mean, people, su- you know, people actually suing to discover how algorithms uh, work and so on. The examples that tend, you tend to highlight or one tends to highlight are real and visceral and important, right? And so it, it is no mistake. It is no coincidence that the people who are uh, who are being falsely arrested under facial recognition are black men. I mean, you know, that that is everything to do with the carceral state and the and the and the context in which it it, it arises. I've also heard stories about um people like for example, Asian Americans who, you know, are are trying to use uh, cameras to take a selfie, and the system is telling them that their face is doing something that it's not doing. You know what I mean? Um, because their their face is is wasn't part of the training set, and so it's make the, the system's making assumptions about what they're doing and telling them to correct their behavior, right? But it helps to understand the logic behind these systems and the way in which, I mean, if you assume that around something like affect, there aren't uh, cultural distinctions then it's perfectly fine to have some kind of essentializing model that's developed in one context and deployed everywhere but once you understand that that, <laughs> that very assumption is yeah 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 i mean it, 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 like so many things in your book it, it just really gave me um just a deeper appreciation of of things that i already had intuitions around but mm-hmm. i just had not made the
1: connections
0: what, what I love about this moment is that, you know, there are lots of scholars out there who are actually illuminating different parts of this very complex set of technical systems that we have, you know, and I I think of people here like Ruha Benjamin and Alondra Nelson and Lucy Suchman and, you know, there's this Sophia Noble. I mean, the, the list is is long now of scholars that have been bringing us ways of looking at the underlying racialized, gendered, and class logics. I mean, here I'm also thinking of Virginia Eubanks' work, you know, looking at how poverty itself is seen as being, a you know, a problem, a thing that's sort of classified um, immediately into technical systems as a red flag. I mean, the way that those normalizing and essentializing visions of like, who is... Who is the average citizen and how should they behave and, and what is sort of correct behavior? Those norms are being built into really essentially a set of scoring systems that can have profound impacts on everything from hiring to insurance to criminal justice. So... How do you start to see those? And, and, and that to me is is really the fundamental democratic question that we're also facing here. That these are not systems that are coming from, in many cases, you know, public entities. They're coming from private companies, for-profit companies that you know are protected by uh, laws that allow them not, in many cases, to even show us how these systems work. It's sort of proprietary, and yet have effects on Populations of billions of people now. um, And we're not seeing how those sorts of normalizing and essentializing functions are working. So I think for me that's why there's an urgency here now, and why I think we're seeing such a a shift of many scholars now raising the alarm. But you know, you could also sort of point to the fact that I'm thinking of people like Oscar Gandhi, who've been who was writing about the panoptic sort. Now, you know, decades back, um, you you could see where this was going, but there is this, as you say, speed now and scaling, this desire to take these ideas and scale them to large numbers of people that I think raises very serious political questions for all of us.
2: I mean, I remember years ago, you and I uh, sat down and wrote together in Nature about the need for a social systems approach, right? Um, Right. And I, I wonder whether... Have we gotten there? What what is what has sort of changed since we since we were sort of making a diagnosis that a lot of the research wasn't looking at social systems as a whole?
0: Right. I mean, you know, and I that was I remember that really well because you know we had that sort of fantastic sort of deep dive. Time of just looking at AI research. And we thought about it as there's a blind spot here. There's a, an extraordinary blind spot by focusing just on sort of technical innovation. And even if there are sort of issues of bias, etc., that that's seen as something that can be fixed technically by either sort of removing a problematic category, as we saw with the sort of the Google Gorilla case, where, you know, Google's image markup systems are actually using extraordinarily offensive terms for African-Americans. We can also, Look at the ways in which people say, "Oh, well, we'll just diversify data sets by, you know, getting people from different parts of the world and, and, and photographing them and taking their data." I mean. What we tried to say is like, this is not enough. We actually need this much broader approach of a social systems analysis to see how these technical systems are actually interacting with our institutions, with populations, and more broadly, I'd have to say, with ecologies. Um, you know, not something that we looked at specifically then, but I think, again, trying to thread that through. Have we got there? Well, I mean you have to say that the conversations in the technical field are opening up a little. We're starting to realize that there's there's certainly more questions that need to be asked. But I think we're still we have a long way to go. I'm curious what you think though. I mean, how I mean, I noticed that you you brought this up in this fantastic article you wrote recently with Daniel Citron looking at how the administrative state is using these types of automated decision services and that you know you were saying we still need these forms of social systems analysis that we don't have.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, you know, that, that time we spent, you know, together writing and thinking was absolutely incredibly influential on me and my, and my work. And so, um, you know, what Danielle Citroen and I, um, have, was, were marveling at was how adept legal and policy scholars, you know, including you and I and, and Danielle had been at identifying the ways in which trying to replicate human decision making with algorithms and software. Would uh, take away opportunities for due process and opportunities for to challenge and to you know engage and and, and this idea that we were substituting you know, what people did with machines and it would and it, and it would uh, erode the kinds of constitutional and statutory guarantees you're supposed to have uh, when just when governments make decisions about you. But then you know we get we did we backed out a little bit and we sort of thought about it from us from a from a more systemic vantage point and we started to think about the way in which the administrative state agencies, federal agencies, state agencies in the United States and abroad, their, 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 their whole existence, their, their justification is the idea that they're going to be repositories of expertise and that they're going to have the kind of, um, dynamism and discretion and nimbleness to respond to real people's problems on the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. And here they are taking that expertise and that discretion. Um, because they're overwhelmed, because they're underfunded, right? And throwing it away with both hands by trying to replicate the decision-making processes that have been committed to them, and and you know that was a real uh, light bulb moment moment for both of us. You know, I mean, as you know, Danielle like wrote like the piece on this technological due process years and years ago. There's a number of people making, making those kinds of moves these, these mm-hmm. days. And it's, it's good. It's good to see. I actually want to ask you a, a follow up question. It's very much related to this. So what I've noticed in, in all, and it's been so many positive, lovely reviews and, te- and, 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 and uh, people attesting to, to your book. And one of the things I've seen has that people have glommed onto this, this sentence, right? A couple of people have glommed on the sentence where you say something like, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing, we say something like, you know, we need to, uh, stop focusing so much on ethics and, and focus on power. Mm. Right? Stop focusing so much on ethics, to so focus on power. And, I, and I, I really wanted to take this chance to just ask you, you know, what, what, what were you getting at with that statement? Cause because, and I'll give you a little more context, which is, isn't a maldistributions of power about moral ethics, right? At some level, you know, so, but so what, so what were you getting at when you were saying, let's stop talking about ethics. Let's start talking about power
0: right yeah i mean and and it appears in the book in sort of a chapter specifically dedicated to power and how we might think about power differently in ai and it's it's certainly sort of a thread throughout my work over the last decade really is, is is trying to focus less on these ideas of narrow interpretations of technical effects and broader structural issues of how power is distributed and centralized in ways in society but also amplified by these sorts of technical systems um, and in particular, that moment in the book is referring to what we've been seeing just over the last five years, which is as we've started to, to hear more and more criticisms of technical systems producing sort of discriminatory results and, and disempowering particularly marginalized communities and, and, and re-enriching and re-empowering those who are already powerful that one of the responses we've seen particularly from the tech sector itself is the creation of ethical guidelines. It's like, oh, well, you know, we now have a set of ethical guidelines to decide what we should do. You know, we saw this uh, with Google in particular after the uh, scandal around Project Maven, and you know, created a sort of a gigantic uproar within the company. That the, the company's response was to sort of create these these ethical principles. Um,
2: now, that was the realization with Maven for those who may not be familiar that that some of the systems that Google were being deployed in, in drone targeting and identification, at least, or at least targeting identification.
0: Yeah. yeah. Always when we're talking about drones, I'm always like, deep in, in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Right? So well, yeah. I mean, that's my <laughs> that's my
2: wheelhouse, so to speak. Um, exactly.
0: Um, my roadhouse. So house. you know. And we've seen that we've now, there, there are now hundreds of ethical codes for AI that have been produced by industry bodies, by companies, by uh, scholars. Um, it, it, it has become almost sort of this this go-to approach. And, and And what troubles me about that is that it's not back-ended with any sort of type of actual accountability or regulatory framework. And you know it, it becomes sort of used almost as a cipher for self-regulation that you know if we've got these ethical guidelines then self-regulation can work we don't need actual laws um, and, and and frankly you know to me we've seen the failures of that already and, and instead by looking at who becomes more powerful by the use of a particular system, and and to really understand that, we need to sort of unpack the way in which AI systems come with particular types of logics baked into them. And again, this is this is something that I look at in the book in terms of, as a historical perspective. You know, the ways of seeing that these tools actually enhance are the ways of seeing that are deployed as advertising logics by large companies, as sort of policing and sort of militarized logics. Uh, we, we could talk. About Palantir here as well so these these sorts of forms of centralizing power and centralizing the ability to classify to score and to determine opportunities for other people that is the shift that I think we need to make that I'm sort of referring to there and it and it has a really long history I mean doing it as of power analysis we can go back to you know Half of the the 20th century's philosophers were dealing with this, particularly we could talk about Foucault, we could talk about Simon Don. but honestly, most importantly, is how do we get the field to start thinking about when a system is being constructed, does it, in fact, just empower the already powerful, or does it find new ways of actually changing those asymmetries?
1: We're in the middle of a discussion on AI with Kate Crawford, author of Atlas of AI, Power, Politics, and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence, and University of Washington law professor and tech policy expert, Ryan Kahlo. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you are there, join our newsletter. Now, back to Kate and Ryan. So this is a, this
2: is a bit of a curveball. You know, I, I'm going to be honest with you, but you know, I, so I've been reading um, a lot of work of, about the relationship between law and policy and normativity. And in particular, the work of, of Robin West um, at, at Georgetown and in, in her book, um, Normative Jurisprudence. And an observation that she's made is that it's important to map power. Mm-hmm. It's important to show where power is, where it isn't. You know, and how the law, you know, for example, in her, in her field and, you know, but also our field, there are ways in which law and legal institutions tend to perpetuate power, tend to obscure power, obfuscate power. But that doesn't tell us at a normative level. Where power distributions are problematic, right? And so we can certainly, I mean, I, you know, I know you and I and, 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 and most, most people are committed to, for example, anti-racism. So when you see power reside in just one ethnicity and not in another, you can look at that and you can say, this is normatively wrong, right? It's, it's, it, because I can point to values about equality, right? But I do think that a minimum, it's my own, you know, my own view is that a minimum, you have to show where power is. You have to locate it. You have to map it, because otherwise, you cannot have that conversation about whether the balance is appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my own concern about ethical principles, if I may, is simply that they often they're often these soaring concepts that no serious person would disagree with, right? <laughs> does,
0: does anybody does anybody want AI not to be safe or or fair, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it, I I love that you're raising it this way because you know, fundamentally. You know, ethics is necessary to this field, but it's not sufficient. And I think that's that's the piece that that is is really clear. And certainly, by talking about power, we are we're invoking ways of thinking about fundamental ethical relations. But it's also it's outside of this kind of narrow idea of the ethical principle of like be excellent to each other, keep AI safe. You know, it's like, well, what, right. what does that actually mean in practice when we know that these systems are having these really sort of profound Interventions that are widening inequality, um, and, and we can see that across across multiple vectors.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there there is there isn't a, a, a silver lining, I suppose, or I think there's a bit of a silver lining, which is that that enchanted determinism. Where these things are magical, right? When, when you, when you begin to, when you begin to, um, reveal how these enchanted brooms that you thought were going to help you clean up before the sorcerer came back, in fact, were out of control and doing, and doing terrible things. And, you know, and of course, non-trivial things, you know, uh, deleterious things. It, it does, it does at least open people's eyes to the embeddedness of things like heteronormativity and, and racism and the like. So one question I have for you, and this is not an easy one, I guess, and no, no softballs here, but, um, is, well, imagine that you're a student Mm-hmm. or you're you're an early career researcher right and you have to navigate this world and this is also responsive to a, a question we got from the live stream which is how what, what kinds of advice would you give or how would you begin to think about navigating this environment given the logics of the systems you're working with the financial and political incentives of, of the people you're working with what would you do people who want to get into ai or, or early in their careers in ai what would you say?
0: right, right and and for me, like it, it's such a timely question right now, because I think the field is in a crisis moment, sort of deciding where can you do your best work, and will tech companies allow you to really kind of publish critical research? will they allow you to try to intervene to think about systems differently and, and so this is a really live debate at this at this precise moment, and I think one of the things we're starting to see is that actually for students now who are studying these systems, you know, you have more power than you think, you know, and, and you, can, you can actually talk to your professors and say, you know, let's start to sort of draw different sorts of bodies of knowledge into these questions. Let's actually start to study what happens when you apply technical systems to existing social institutions. These are questions that have predominantly lived within like the social sciences, you know, within law, within STS, within sociology. Um, But you can actually start to incorporate those. And I think in many ways for students now, it's like, how do you widen the ways of seeing and escape that type of tunneling effect that is so common. And also historically, we have to think about the ways in which computer science and engineering have have not seen themselves as social disciplines, as disciplines fundamentally about, you know, how they were affecting people's lives. We cannot say that anymore. Like these are profoundly political and social systems. So, you know, I think for students thinking about that, first of all, like how do you study them? How do you think about their construction? How do you think about their longevity and their broader costs in terms of how they're constructed? Environmental costs, labour costs, data costs. But then in terms of like where do you think about the field and where to work. You know, that now, I think, is, is a question where people are asking much harder questions and they're less likely to be like, oh, you know, tech jobs are straightforward and, you know, we're saving the world. And I think that that's actually a really good shift. I think we're sort of starting to sort of move away from that tech utopianism to be, you know, more aware and I think skeptical that just because you've created a new app, um, that's harvesting a lot of data that everyone should just trust that that's completely fine. Um, so I think those conversations in some ways have become a lot more nuanced and advanced. And that's something that I, you know, I'm really optimistic about.
2: Yeah, I, I am too, you know, and, 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 and I know that, you, you know, you, you've spent, um, uh, nearly all of your, your professional, uh, career, um, uh, con, you know, at least it connected to the academy, if not, you know, in, in, a, in a research or, or teaching role. Um, and so one of the questions that we got was around the role of a university. And I just want to just want to sort of preface this with saying that, you know, we think about this constantly. Like, so, you know, we, the Tech Policy Lab, we're trying to cre- create materials that that you can use in, in, in technical uh, classes. But I think that the concern is how do you make it endure? How do you make it sticky? I mean, you can make everybody, you know, read technology society be durable. No, actually, I wouldn't inflict that on people. But you can have you can get everybody can read, you know, certain, uh, certain texts, you know, um, and walk away with a sort of profound aha moment, but how do you make it endure? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that can just as just as ethical principles might be a kind of, you know, superficial, my own words, a superficial way to, to, to address some of these concerns in the, in the um, industrial space, you know, so could just sort of throwing a couple of, uh, you know, uh, readings about Foucault, about this, about uh, in STS or whatever. At, at So, you know, I, I guess, I mean, not that I'm asking you to solve all the, all this hard problem, but I mean, it seems to me like it's a distinct research question. How can university, what is the role of universities and ensuring that people who graduate and then end up working in this field right, have those right. perspectives and tools, yeah,
0: yeah. And you're right. We do. We we've been talking about this a lot. I know you and I um, sort of think a lot about this question too. So I'm I am ultimately going to flip this question back to you as well. But but in the first instance, I think. We also have to be super careful that these kinds of debates don't just become absorbed back into computer science, where it's like, oh, well, now we'll just sort of read the whale on the reactor, or we'll start to talk about, you know, STS, and and that's that's it. Now you've you know you've graduated, right? That actually we we this is the problem both around siloization at the university, but how knowledge itself has to be. I think in many ways sort of, brought from completely different perspectives and, and that is challenging at universities. Universities aren't designed that way, you know, they've been designed you know, since the 1500s to be sort of very specifically around domains and you stay in your domain and I think that's many, in many cases what we're up against. Another thing that we're up against is, you know, we are talking ultimately here about the workings of capital, you know, how AI itself is, I think, a phenomenon that's really only possible because of the kind of extraordinary uh, amounts of wealth that, you know, certain companies have and certain individuals have. So, you're looking at something that is itself an outgrowth of a phase of capitalism itself. And while at the same time, I think, is Again, ratcheting that up, sort of ramping up those, those, those very types of inequalities that we've been talking about. So how at universities can you start to study that, intervene, at the very least, conceptualise those sort of deeper political and economic shifts? You know, that is something that I think also needs to be done. And it's, it's going to be hard to be done in a, in a, siloed, a siloed way. But tell me, Ryan, how do you address this? Because I know this is something that is core to the tech policy lab. You've been wrestling with this for years.
2: So a lot of what we do at the tech policy lab is put together interdisciplinary teams. And my my own belief, and this is not necessarily shared universally, but my own belief is that, you know, you, you can't do interdisciplinary work without disciplines. That is to say mm-hmm. that, you know, you do need some specificity people need to be trained in a methodology and and it's, and it's or one or more and you can't simply train everybody in everything Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so to, to, when we put together interdisciplinary teams, a lot of the focus uh, is on uh, being able to communicate across disciplines, being able to set common goals, being able to. And, and it's and it's through some of these projects that are, are alumni of the lab. The longer I'm in, ac- in academia, the, m- the more uh, I just am, am, am mostly excited about the, the people that come through my shop and our, our shops here and, and, and do great things. You know, they lo- they learn that kind of fluency. They learn how to talk to other people. They learn how to bring in perspectives. Um, and so we, we, you know, we have had. I, I think, I, I hope, and expect that we've had some success with this. But you know, it's like been like, you know like dozen people at a time kind of thing, right? And so I I I, I don't know. You know, I, and I've asked a lot of people about this. You know, there was one person I asked who was in STS, and he said he's tried everything, but he assigns this great essay about. How intentional the Amish are about using technology, and this one essay has, for some reason, really gotten through to his students and uh-huh. stuck with them years later. And I said, "You need to send me that essay, right?" And, and and so I and I read it and I agree. You know, so but so maybe there's some interesting artifacts lying about there that could that could yeah. help. Um, but there's no, oh, yeah. but you know, but there's no magical talisman. I mean, uh, we, we um, this has gone, of course, as I. Might expect uh, really, really fast, and there's a couple more things I do want to ask you about, if if I may. So I'm going to try to sneak them in. But so one is, we've been really, really talking about the responsibility of junior people. We've been talking about industry's role. We've been, talking, but I mean, what about government? Mm, right? I, I mean, know. I mean, what about government? Right? I mean, my my view is that, and this is this is something that you and I have talked about many times. I think I might even be stealing your line, so I apologize. But the idea is that. You know, it's. I believe you, you. You've said to me that, you know, it's amazing how proponents of AI, right, say like that this is going to change everything. This is going to, you know, this is going to change everything. But, but nothing should change, right? Yeah. There should be no meaningful changes to law or or, or legal institutions, Perfect. even though this is the transformative technology of our time right. and it's right. going to change everything, except for right. the people that, you know. And so, like, I, I wonder, like, you know, are we at a point where it's start to starting to be really fair to ask? I get it. It's not easy to regulate AI. It's not a thing. You know what I mean? Like I understand all that, but like, what kinds of real, meaningful legal interventions might be might be appropriate today?
0: Right, and 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 you know, again, I I love talking about this with you, Ryan, because for me, the sort of standout moments over the last decade have been when we've kind of had really granular conversations where we've looked at different regimes and said, you know, this isn't working, and and part of it is, I think, exactly what you said that there has been this movement saying these are transformative technologies but they should not be transformed at the level of law you know don't think about regulation and then you see what just happened last month with the eu's proposed guidelines for regulating ai and you know it's it has to be commended for attempting to come up with omnibus legislation that would actually deal with all of these questions And, and you certainly see the kind of most hotly debated areas reference there, you know, in terms of facial recognition um, at scale, in terms of emotion recognition, which is sort of specifically called out as an area of concern, Um, and and certainly in terms of training sets, in terms of these substrates of technical systems, again, now being thought of as something that requires a sort of a regulatory framework. This is all good, but unfortunately, what I think you see there is uh, a real over-reliance on transparency, Right? So that if you walk into a shopping mall and you see a sign that says, Oh, our systems are doing emotion recognition. Have a nice day. You know, it's not like you have the option to say, I don't want these systems used when I do a job interview, or I don't want them used in my school. Um, again, that ability to refuse to opt out um, is is very I sort of, I think, underbaked in these kinds of regulatory frameworks. And, and, and in some ways, I think don't give us enough to work with. And of course, you know, you would know better than I what happens when that moves into all of the different legislatures that are actually going to start to work with that for the EU. Um, but I'm curious what you think. I mean, I feel like we're really far behind where we should be and that innovation in the technical space has been lionized far more than innovation in the legal space.
2: Well, that I, I absolutely agree agree with that. And I, and I think, I mean, my, my own... Hope in the United States, because, because the truth of the matter is just that, you know, the U.S. typically does not have the European appetite for mm. omnibus legislation that covers a bunch of different things. But I, I will say that, you know, there is a, the Brussels effect to so sort to of speak, is also real, right? Mm. And so some of the states in the United States are paying attention and the, and the U.S. government is paying attention to some degree. Um, but there's just really different, huge differences. Um, but I think what Europe is modeling is even if these are not the exact rules that wind up Governing, right? If, even if people convince them that this or this is not enough, this is too much, they put something on the table, yep. right? They've said, and in a sense, in that way, Europe has taken AI more seriously than the United States. For for me, I think a lot of the things that we could change in the U.S. have to do with just improving the ecosystem. The way we know about many of the animating examples. Um, and I've also read this in many an AI Now report, so I, I, it's not lost on I me mean, that you know you know this too. But in many of the animating examples, the reason we know them is because some whistleblower or some uh, a, a researcher figured out that something was doing something and it shouldn't be doing or that we thought was abhorrent once it was brought to light. And yet, you know, researchers are facing literal cease and desist orders from huge household name companies uh, telling them not to, re- you know, telling them to stop their research because it's it's problematic to them. And so, you know, one thing we could do, for example, and there's a number of different examples like this, is we could we could make sure to protect internal and external accountability research, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's a change that's needed and, and concrete, and it doesn't require you to sort of pretend that AI is a thing like a train that you can just regulate.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, and and I think again, if there's something that gives me enormous. Optimism and hope. It's that, you know, we have an Alondra Nelson in the White House with oh, the I title know. of Science and Society, right? So immediately putting these frameworks you know, outside of just looking at sort of the technical domains, but to start to say these have wider social contexts, um, political contexts, ecological contexts that we have to account for. So, you know, in that sense, already the conversation has shifted. I mean, who knew that infrastructure would be the hot topic for 2021 (laughs) if you were talking about this two years ago? Um, So, you know, in that sense, I think that there's better ground conditions and we have to, I think, look at that EU moment is something to be grateful for for putting it on the table, as you say. It's not it's not perfect yet, but we're now starting to have that conversation around what would it look like if if we had better regulatory re- regimes in the US, but also around the world. You know, this is a bigger question. Right.
2: Having someone like Alondra Nelson, who's an STS and race and, you know, and, and, and technology scholar of renown, you know what I mean? Like being in the White House is amazing. Having, you know, frankly, Lynn Parker, who's had all that time at NSF and is so and has been so instrumental in getting humanities involved in technical research. I mean, this is these are good things. Right. So the question I want to ask you, though, is completely unrelated. I, I just have to ask you, which is that your book, spoiler alert, sort of ends in an interesting place. It ends with this coda. And the coda is about, you know, drum roll. Um, it's about space exploration. It's about mm-hmm. space exploration. And, so, and it's about the idea that there's going to be this privatized space race where billionaires compete to be, you know. And I just, I wanted to know, like, what led you to sort of ha- put a coda on this and to end on that note? And what do you think that it says? Like, what do you think that this, this story about the space race that we're looking at next, um, mm-hmm. maybe your next book? I don't know. But the point is, like, what, it, what, 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 what work is that doing for you? And we'll end there
0: you know in so many ways this book is tracing you know from the, the very surface of the earth through labor through data through classification through affect through the state how these kinds of technical systems are deeply implicated in forms of capital and extraction. And where does that end up, Ryan? Well, look at the people who've made the most money out of the tech sector. Who? What are the tech billionaires doing? We've got Jeff Bezos. We've got Elon Musk. We have multiple people in the tech space now spending all of that money, this vast amounts of money, in creating this privatized space race. And I think it tells us something in, in multiple ways. It points to something really profound in terms of you know, what is the vision. You know, you've made billions of dollars, and now you're going to leave the earth? You're going you're to say, that's it. Now I'm out here. I'm out, yeah. I've got what I wanted, I'm out. You know. What kind of vision does that have in terms of sort of responsibility to the planet on which we live, the only planet on which we know can sustain life in this way? Um, so there's that. But there's actually something interesting too that I know that, that you've thought about too, which is if we look at sort of legal domains around public goods. So you can think about the Enclosure Acts. So you can think about the way in which land was sort of shifted into private property. You know, space has always been seen as a commonly owned good. It's, it's, it's a collectively owned space by all of us. You know, and actually what we've started to see is an erosion of that. We've started to see sort of the emergence of mining as the next, you know, as a space question that you could go and sort of mine asteroids. And we're starting to also see that idea that, you know, this is actually – again, an enclosure, an enclosure of that space by the richest men in the world. And I saw that, you know, for me, that the last journey that I go on in the book is going to go and see Blue Origin, the reusable rocket base that Jeff Bezos owns in this huge desert expanse in West Texas. And, you know, I'd done the research to figure out, you know, where's the public land where you can stand and look and photograph this base. And even there, you know, I started to see that, you know, I was being watched and people were coming to check me out. I was like, you know, you are not welcome here. And it was such a perfect analogy for that idea of this loss of the commons that is happening across the board, that everything has been captured harvested for private companies and for profit from you know our histories our data uh, the space of the earth and now outer space itself so that's why you know i really end there because i think it points to the the way that these logics extend and i think we should be really concerned about them
2: well thank you and 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 we're going to end there too but thank you so much for coming here thank you for this just magisterial book i mean it's just it's it's wonderful what an accomplishment and thank you so much for spending this time with
0: us ryan you're an absolute mitch and a gem and thank you for all that you do for this field Uh, you make us all wiser and smarter all the time so thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure
1: that's it for this week's show I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening.
0: Tech Policy Press.